0: Welcome to Big Blend Radio, where we celebrate variety and how it adds spice to quality of life. Monarch butterflies, they migrate from Canada and America down to Mexico every fall, every year. Hundreds of millions of them. It is one of those amazing natural wonders to experience. However, the monarch butterfly is threatened by habitat loss not just in America but also going into Mexico. And today, February 5th, 2024, we are celebrating Western Monarch Butterfly Day. And you know, this is important to think about not just today, February 5th, 2024, but honestly every day. These monarch butterflies are incredible. So they they you know fly south and then they come back home to the states and a little portion of Canada every spring. And we're getting ready for that. Um, But as I record this today, there's piles of snow outside. So I always think about them. How do they do this? Well, I went on to monarchwatch.org. And this is the incredible organization that created the Monarch Way Stations that really can get you to create a way station for monarchs to have the right food, shelter, water, etc., giving them a landing spot. And I was on their website and Dr. Orly Arch, who know, known as Chip Taylor, uh, the founding director of Monarch Watch, uh, provided some interesting facts for us. The migration. So, yes, as I said, hundreds of millions of monarch butterflies migrate from eastern North America to Mexico each fall. They overwinter in the high elevation oyamel fir forests of the transvolcanic range of central Mexico they are unable to survive freezing temperatures, and so those breeding in temperate regions must escape to moderate climates to reproduce the next season. Most of the monarchs joining the migration each fall are three to four generations removed from those that made the journey the previous year. The migration actually begins in mid-August in the north and in September at the mid-latitudes, and it progresses at a pace of 25 to 30 miles per day Though individual butterflies often fly further during periods when conditions are favorable. Most monarchs originate from locations more than 1,500 linear miles from the overwintering sites. This is incredible. The duration of the migration appears to be two to two and a half months. Amazing. Think about these butterflies. The monarch breeding areas in eastern North America are recolonized by two generations of monarchs: the overwintering butterflies that move north in the spring and their offspring, and then the latter reach maturity and begin flying north and northeast in late April, reaching the, normal, nor, the northern limits—excuse me, the northern limits of milkweeds by mid-June. So milkweed is their food. This is a huge deal. And that's part of this uh, Monarch Waystation program and many other programs we're going to talk about later is really about having milkweed, which is a native species. And there are certain, I mean, milkweed has all kinds of species um, in there. And it's about having the right milkweed. Some of it is invasive if it goes to the wrong area. Uh, so anyway we have a lot of resources in our show notes so click on them we have podcasts with gardening experts and uh, we have a special podcast coming on uh, after I finish up these facts so let's get back to it longevity migratory monarchs survive the winter in Mexico Uh, those ones that, that go to Mexico are eight to nine months of age and may be the longest lived of all butterflies think of it They only live eight to nine months, these poor babies. I want them to live forever. Um, In contrast, reproductive monarchs breeding during the summer months, they only live two to five weeks due to the high cost of reproduction. So this is really, you know, you've got to think about their timing here. This is a short lifespan for these babies. Uh, Monarch populations are measured as the number of hectares. One hectare is 2.47 acres um, of trees. So they're looking at the number of trees because they cluster in the trees in mid-December of each year. Uh, The size of the population has varied from 2.19 to 18.2 hectares over the last two decades, averaging close to nine hectares in the 90s and between five to six hectares in this decade. So the threats. That's the thing. That is why today is so important and that we look at conservation of them. During the breeding season, monarchs require milkweed plants upon which to rear their larvae and nectar sources to sustain the adults during reproduction. Nectar sources are also required by the butterflies to fuel the fall migration to Mexico as well as the spring flights northward. So they're going back and forth. Overwintering monarchs require shelter and water and that's where we can help Uh, We can be like the hotels for the butterflies, basically. All of these resources are diminishing and deforestation at the overwintering sites in Mexico has eliminated a number of former colony sites and others have been badly degraded so as to reduce the shelter and water available to wintering butterflies. So Mexico has been deforesting. We have pesticides and all these things happening. Uh, that hurt the actual habitat for these butterflies. So that's again, how we have to all work together. There's a conservation program uh, that all three countries have to get together and they're working on it, USA, Canada, and Mexico. So this is all a Northern American uh, issue that we can get together on. So there is a North American monarch conservation plan that is It's a program that is being worked on to help everyone. So we're going to go, we talked about the deforestation in Mexico a little bit here, but in the United States, 6,000 acres are converted to development each day. Think about it, 6,000 acres every single day are being developed. And that eliminates the milkweeds needed by the monarchs and the monarch larvae and the nectar sources required by the adult monarchs. So that's why planting milkweed and the native milkweed, the right milkweed in your area is so important. So we're talking about conservation. So at the end of this uh, segment, we're going to, we went into our nature, Big Blend Radio Nature Connection Archives and we're going to re-air our interview with Sarah Dykman. She talks about her book, Bicycling with Butterflies, My 10,201 Mile Journey Following the Monarch Migration. It recounts her inspirational ride alongside the monarchs as she follows unmet roads in Michoacan, Mexico, through the United States and into Ontario, Canada, and back again to Mexico. And you can learn more. She's got a great organization. She's doing amazing things for Monarch Butterflies if you go to her website, beyondabook.org. And so all of that, again, is listed and linked in the show notes. I do want to thank our friend, Marco Carrera, who's been a part of our Nature Connection shows. She's a fine art nature photographer, and I encourage you to go to her website, margocarrera.etsy.com. All that, again, in the show notes. So, when we look at conservation, it's about it, and you can become an actual monarch way station in your garden. So check out monarchwatch.org, they are incredible. You can do it um, in your backyard. If you're in a community garden, you can do it. um, uh, We need to look at locally in our our local parks, our community parks, our schools. I even know resorts that even are part of the Monarch Way Station. Ventana Canyon up in uh, Tucson. They really have this amazing desert botanical garden in their resort, and they are a monarch way station. A lot of botanical gardens are w- a monarch way stations as well. So, what, wherever we can do it, it's important. Um, National Wildlife Federation has a certified backyard wildlife uh, gardening for wildlife habitat program, and uh, a lot of bed and breakfasts do it. We have podcasts on that, where it's basically creating a pollinator garden. So in the show notes, I have some links to garden experts. Um, we've got Kim Ironman, uh, who's got the Pollinator Victory Garden is her book. We've also got Nancy Lawson, the humane gardener. They're all about creating the ecosystems and bringing them back so they work in together. And that's bringing back the monarch butterflies as well. There's also Stephanie Rose uh, with the regenerative garden. And uh, recently, we did an interview with Adrian Edwards and Rachel Schlager about their book, Firescaping Your Home, A Manual for Readiness in Wildfire Country. We're talking about California, Colorado, all these wildfires that have been happening, especially in the West, even Canada. That affects our monarchs as well. But by planting the correct native species, your habitat will be more resilient to fires. So they talk about that in their book and on the interview, and they actually talk about milkweed as well. So there's that book as well as uh, for kids, Amy Stark, uh, her book is The Fairy Godmother Who Helps the Monarch. So I've got links to everybody as well as Dr. Doug Tellamy. He took his book, Nature's, best hope and created one just for young readers where he encourages young readers to get out and use their backyard to create their own national park. So in other words, you're going to create a garden together with your family and put in the native plants. So you attract these species like monarch butterflies, hummingbirds, local birds, you know, the native plants are really the key thing but milkweed is huge for just about everybody. And milkweed really helps the monarchs. So again, I, I think the most important resource out of everything is monarchwatch.org. Some really cool things Nancy and I have seen as we travel the country and our Love Your Parks tour is the National Wildlife um, Refuges really do a really huge thing in um, creating monarch way stations and doing things about bringing pollinators back by, you know, one good example is a Buenos Aires National Wildlife Refuge, south of Tucson, Arizona. They were getting rid of invasive species and bringing back in the forbs and the ripe plants. They have actually like a short grass prairie and they have pronghorn and the bobwhite quail. And so by doing this and bringing back some of the actual milkweed, and the milkweed's going to be different there than it is in Colorado, different than in the east. Um, And in fact, there's milkweed. I remember in Tucson, when we lived there, there was milkweed vines. Um, That all helps the butterflies as well. But it was really cool to see this landscape change that from being a ranch um, that, ended up having all these invasives in there, having this habitat be restored and the wildlife does come back. It Restoration works. And this is one of those environments. So wildlife refuges do a great job and it's a great place to take kids. So do our national parks and public lands, our state parks. So I encourage you to take kids out and get involved. Um, one thing I also uh, wanted to talk about was the Lake Lure Flowering Bridge. So this is a new thing that is starting to happen in communities across the country where these old bridges are just getting torn down. And then master gardeners are getting together and saying, heck no, you're not taking down our old bridge. We're going to make a garden out of it. And the Lake Lure uh, flowering bridge is in North Carolina, just outside Asheville, and actually right outside Chimney Rock, which is a state park. And they dedicated this bridge as a flowering bridge in October on October 19th 2013 and it is also a national wildlife federation certified wildlife habitat and a certified Monarch Way station that I was talking about through Monarch Watch, and a destination on the Rosalind Carter Butterfly Trail and the Appalachian Mural Trail. It's open year-round, and it's free to visit, and it's wheelchair accessible. These bridges create, I mean, it's amazing what you can do with what would be deemed dead space or brown space. Uh, I'm even thinking about the rail yard Uh, park out in uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico that we went to that took a brown space and put in native plants and even orchards so people could get food. And they also used the indigenous people's way of gardening with waffle gardens and water conservation. And they took this brown space. Think about the toxins that come from a rail yard, right? And it thrives have a huge rose garden but butterflies they have the native plants and the right milkweed so having the correct milkweed is very important so the other thing we saw uh you know as we travel the country we end up going to rest areas and parks and i'm going to say the midwest kicks some butt when it comes to planting milkweed and They really have to, because of the agriculture and the pesticides used in agriculture, they realized, oh, we've got to fix this. And they've been doing it. And at a lot of rest areas in Missouri, Indiana, I mean, Iowa, Minnesota, you will see actual um, monarch gardens, monarch way stations in a rest area. You pull over on the side of the rest area, you want to go to the bathroom, stretch your legs, get a drink, soda kind of thing. Um go to a vending machine is what I'm talking about. (laughs) No drinking and driving here. Um, And they have gardens, actual pollinator gardens. So they're educating us all as the public, but they're actually taking their highways and going, hey, we can't have a dead space. And so it's really, really cool. So there is an actual monarch highway. And we found out that we were on it as we Travel the jefferson highway the jefferson highway is a historic road that goes from winnipeg canada down to new orleans um in new in louisiana and part of it is an actual monarch highway it's it really is a migration it, it follows the the migration collar uh, corridor for the um actual monarch butterflies, follows Interstate 35 from Laredo, Texas, to Duluth, Minnesota. So it's really the central flyway of the eastern migratory population of the monarch butterfly. It's a partnership effort that brings people together to conserve the actual habitat for these butterflies. It's not just on the roadsides. It's in people's gardens. It's about um, this whole area, not just on I-35 but it's about spreading out in homes, in gardens, in farmlands, corporate areas that have industrial parks that have some green space put in milkweed. So it is a really cool, cool program. So that website is a monarchjoinventure.org. Again, everything will be in the show notes for you. And speaking of fun facts on, um, Monarchs, I also have a link to the U.S. Forest Service who gives a really cool list of fun facts about monarch butterflies. Uh, they talk about, you know, the species. They talk about, like, you know, the, the locations of where you can find them. They tell you the difference between a monarch and a Viceroy um, butterfly, which they look so similar that you may be thinking you're photographing a monarch and it will actually be a Viceroy. They talk about what they eat, the wildflowers that they Consume and enjoy. So, I'm going to put that in the show notes too, especially for those of you who like to travel into national forest areas. Trees are a big deal for these, Uh, they like to cluster for the monarchs. So, that's also a big deal. So Anyway, here we go. We're going to go into our interview with Sarah Dykeman, uh, talking about her book, uh, and well, her adventures, really, it's pretty amazing. Uh, when she, her book, Bicycling with Butterflies, again, my 10,201 mile journey following the monarch migration. So take a listen to that again. Everything is in the show notes. Thank you for joining us here on Big Blend Radio. <music>
1: Everybody, our first guest on today's Big Bend Radio Nature Connection show here in California, Sequoia Country in porterville California, is Sarah Dykman. She is the founder of BeyondAbook.org and she's the author, she just totally rocks. Uh, she's the author of Bicycling with Butterflies My 10,200 Wild, One Mile Journey Following the Monarch Migration. So, welcome, Sarah. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on okay. today. Hey, we're excited about it. Nancy's been digging into your book and uh telling telling me all these kinds of stories and tales and um says so, you know really connected with nature, but um I think really also I just got to give a shout out. You I mean, you've got so many accolades coming in. Jane Goodall,
2: you got an email from Jane Goodall, like my hero. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that was I uh definitely jumped up and down when I got an email from her and her her little blurb expressing how how important we telling stories about the monarchs is is, was just very oh that was a good email (laughs) that's awesome that's 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 a reason to
3: celebrate what Mm -hmm. what led
2: you
1: to decide to get on a bicycle and you know and cycle the migration because that goes through mexico all the way up through the rockies i mean that's quite a route Uh, what led you to do that
2: I love animals. In fact, when in your introduction, you were talking about the Sierra. I spend most of my summers in the mountains counting tadpoles, and I've spent the last oh. five five summers or so um, in in the Sierra counting counting tadpoles. And I start that back up in, cool. in June, so I'm I'm super excited. But but I love animals, and I I think each animal has has a story to tell, and this, the the way that we're going to give them voice and to get people excited about taking care of them is, is to tell their stories. And, and so I decided, well, I'm going to, I'm going to ride my bike with the monarch and I'm going to learn as much as I can about the monarch. And along the way, I'm going to be their voice and I'm going to tell their story and I'm going to get people excited. And, and there's a lot of different roles that stewards and conservationists need, need to take to tackle all the problems that we're facing and all the challenges that there are. And, and for me, my I think my role is, is to make conservation fun and exciting mm. and to just remind people that that in their own backyards are these incredible travelers. So you're a traveler, I'm a traveler, but, but like for folks that can't do that, well, the, the travelers can come to them and they can plant gardens in their yard and they can invite these these epic migrants to visit and, and be part of the, the adventure in that way.
1: I love that. I love that. Mm-hmm. I think that's
2: really right about it being fun and –
1: you know, at one point, it's like if, if anybody has any more finger pointing, they're just going to shut down. And especially for our youth, to get our youth involved, and that's something, I know you, as you were cycling around, you spent time with kids and going to schools. What was that like? I mean, they must have, did they look at your bike or like, go, what are you doing? And did you get
2: outside <laughs> the, with them with butterflies? I did. I did all of the above. So my, I've done other other adventures and it was important to me to to share my experiences and my stories with kids because I feel so lucky that I can take the time to, to do these things. And I wanted to share with kids that, it's like, I'm a normal person and you don't have to be, like, the best or the brightest or the smartest or the bravest or any of that. You just need to, like, have an idea and and go with it. And so I actually Mm. talked to almost 9,000 kids on my, on my butterfly trip. And I just love talking with kids. They're so excited about the world. They are full of hope and possibility and, Mm. and they have the best questions. And I'm reminded of, after one presentation, this little girl came up to me and we're just like, I'm, I'm packing up my stuff. I'm putting my tent back in. I always would get my tent out and we'd see how many kids we could fit in it. I I think my record was like 15 kindergartners. Um, So it's like, look, my house is actually quite big. I could fit 15 of you in it. But this little girl came up to me after as I'm packing up, and she just looks at me and she just goes, is any of this real? (laughs) And I just loved it because that's what we need, right, is we need to, like, show kids that, like, it doesn't have to be what you've heard of before. It doesn't have to be something that other people do. Like, you just have to go do it, Your and and just because it mm. hasn't been done doesn't mean it, it's not possible. So oh, yeah, it is that. real. <laughs> yeah, it is.
1: Well, also, I think that right now, you know, the whole COVID thing
2: and, you know,
1: looking at climate change, I think there's fear for young kids. I think there's a scary element for them. It's like, what what's my life going to look like, you know? And to make it fun, it makes it attainable. When something's fun, you know you can go out and do it. You know, it's like, okay, let's let's rock this, you know. So I I really I like that right. part that keeping it fun. Nancy, um you really got into this. You're you've been giving me book reports like every five minutes.
3: Well, there's so much in it. Um and I know all different there's different butterflies and they're probably all different as far as lifespan and what they eat. But it cleared up a lot of things things that I was taught like I remember being taught that butterflies only live one to two days. And now I know mm. that that's not, yeah, that's not true. And they only, they they go from flower to flower to flower. And maybe that's not so true either. Like it seems to me that the, um, yeah, the monarchs really, really just want milkweed. They don't really want any other plants. Is that so?
2: well part of, that's it's partially so so the the monarch females, when they are looking for plants to lay their eggs on, they are exclusively looking for milkweed and For folks that don't know milkweed is the only plant that the monarch caterpillar can eat, and they are it's a it's a to, it's a plant that's toxic to most herbivores mm. and it has like this milky latex sap that's really sticky, but yeah. the monarchs have adapted to be able to eat the the milkweed and actually sequester the toxic chemicals in their body thus rendering them toxic and that's why monarchs are bright orange it's warning pre- potential predators hey i am not a tasty meal you should avoid mm. me,
3: Leave me alone. <laughs> but the
2: the monarch adults they they are actually looking for lots of flowers for nectar mm-hmm. so they're pretty they're pretty opportunistic and and they'll they'll nectar on on any flowers they get and that's especially important on the fall migration so if you live on the route of the monarch in the fall, having all they're not laying eggs in the fall, but they are trying to fuel up. And they and monarchs are one of the few migrants that arrives to their destination fatter than when they start. And and that's because as they're traveling south to to Mexico to the forest, they're eating as much as they are, excuse me, they're drinking as much nectar as they can. And then they get to Mexico and it's just this such this amazing phenomenon. They'll actually cluster in the branches of the trees in Mexico at about 10,000 feet above sea level where it's pretty cold because they're cold-blooded they'll remain inactive and they'll actually live off their fat reserves for most of the winter so wow. it's wow. there's just all these little secrets and you know it's like one of the things is like the more i peddled with them the more i learned about them just the more amazed i was and the, and the more i fell in love with the monarch oh
1: it's interesting when you talk about migration when i remember driving from tucson I was going to Joshua Tree, yeah, and I was taking more of the roads that are closer to the border areas, and it's it's really beautiful. It's actually following the Juan Bautista de Anza National Historic Trail on these uh, areas, and there was a caterpillar migration. They were crossing over the road everywhere, and I was like, this is amazing. I was filming them. I'm like, they're just, they're all on this. I didn't know caterpillars did that. I, I see it with tarantulas and, you know, other, you know, cool bugs, but I did not know caterpillars did that.
2: Well, that's something that you you notice things like that, especially when you're on a bike or when you're walking, because you yeah. have to really slow down. And I, what I noticed on my bike tour is that I – so every species is a little different, right? And I would notice certain caterpillars were always crossing the road. Like I would always be noticing, like, the tent caterpillars crossing the road. But on my entire 10,000 mile trip, I only saw two monarch caterpillars crossing the road, and and I think no. what it is is monarch monarchs will feed on milkweed, and then they will leave the milkweed to find a spot to to make their chrysalis. I don't think they're on the move quite like other species, and so I love that I love how you get to know animals by just really paying attention and. And I saw so many monarch caterpillars. Like I got so good at it, I not to brag, but I could like spot a monarch caterpillar going ten miles an hour. I'd often look for like on the milkweed wherever the milk monarch will chew, there'll be like that white latex sap will kind of ooze out and it'll form these like horseshoe shaped white marks on mm. the milkweed. And I'd see one of those and I'd slam on my brakes and then I'd dive into the into the, <laughs> the ditches and there's just there's so much happening along the roads and I think, like you said, like making those observations is really just kind of connects you to the world, and it leaves you with a lot more questions than answers. I know it's so cool. When we did our
1: trip into Sequoia National Park uh, the other day, we went with the naturalist uh, Rebecca uh, Jones, and she she was awesome because we had we were just taking it really slow through the giant forest, and. That way we could see all the bugs, and the first thing we did see was a caterpillar. Actually, <laughs> like true. I love them. It was so cool. It they, they was like doo doo
3: doo doo
1: Anyway, through <laughs> the bushes, you know, and I'm 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 like that about spiders, all of it. I want to I want I'm into the bug world because I think that they're um, often feared. Butterflies are like oh they're pretty, you know that's great, but I think we've got to look at how important these species are um i remember doing a thing on butterflies and realizing that if we took down this one yucca type of plant, uh one yucca species, that one one it was one butterfly or one moth specific moth species would lose all of its food because it only had to have that species. And mm-hmm. from there that exactly. does it does circle back to us, doesn't it? I mean when you think about it we're all connected in the web of life. And butterflies are part of right. it. Right.
2: Mm. Yes, and that's one of the yeah. things I love most about the monarch is I actually call them gateway bugs because you're right. It's easy to fall in love with the butterfly, especially a, a bright orange, beautiful one. They're e- the monarch is pretty easy to recognize. They're like kind of floppy flyers. They don't just like zoom by so you can get good looks at them. But what I notice is that you fall in love with the adult and then you're like, oh, I want to learn more. So you learn about the caterpillars. So you really start getting in the weeds. And you're crawling around and you discover not just the caterpillars, but you discover the spiders. And I think when you really start to look, I always say people look, but they don't see. When you start to really look and actually see all the creatures, you see their beauty. You see that every creature is worth noticing and worth celebrating and worth and worth protecting and, and giving habitat to. Absolutely. I think they all have a place
3: and and are they're part of a cycle that it has to stay the same. You remove one species and it's going to affect, even though we at this point probably don't know how certain species, if they go away, affect us. I'm pretty sure there's going to be an effect. You know, we just haven't studied. Yeah, we haven't studied long enough for all of the species to know what the effect really is going to be.
2: Yes, yes. And I think we're mm. learning that, you know, the mm. news is kind of depressing and, and we're learning all those things. But that's a, another thing about the monarch that's so great is like when you protect the monarch, you are protecting so many other plants and animals. And and it doesn't need to be the monarch. It can be whatever species really just calls to you. And if you set aside land, set aside space on your land and your, your front yard and your backyard, wherever that may be, to, to help that, that species that it, you're drawn to, you're going to help the monarch. You're going to help the caterpillars that you don't know the names of. You're going to help mm-hmm. the, the entire planet. And that's a really beautiful lesson that we all need to learn.
1: I I love what you say about that because the gardens, if in planting native plants, uh, National Wildlife Federation has that wonderful program where you can become a certified backyard habitat. And it's like watching wildlife. You know, you can plant that's cool. something that's correct for the... It's basically don't... it. We need to look at our backyards as not being part of the dead zone. You know, we we look at dead zones in the ocean, but we're doing it by sometimes planting the wrong plants or, um, you know, having water sources for, um, you know, put, put you can put um, like sponges and water together and, and butterflies will come in puddles. You know, there's all kinds of cool things you can do in your backyard. And they're so nice to watch birds. Everybody will come in and you'll have a whole ecosystem it's something we've noticed, and I know, Sarah, that you hang out in rest areas and wildlife refuges like we do. And um, some of the rest areas, I want to start a map of rest areas across the country because some of them have got memorials. But some of them, there seems to be some program where they're doing pollinator gardens at at these rest areas, which I think is pretty cool. Because when you get these big highways and everything, a lot of the land just gets ruined on the side of the road, of the highways it becomes kind of toxic. So by doing these gardens, does that help kind of mitigate what's going on in the roadway?
2: It it does. And there's actually quite a few programs happening to create corridors for monarchs and other pollinators. There's the Monarch Highway program that they're trying to get off the ground that um, spans the I- I-35 corridor that runs through the Midwest. There's actually legislation right now to um, help support municipalities to plant natives. And And it's totally true. Like if you ride your bike across the United States or even drive or whatever, however it is that you're traveling, you are going to just start. If you start to look at all the places that are are wasted, are wasted space, it's gonna Mm -hmm. It'll drive you nuts. It'll like (laughs) and I honestly got kind of mad on the trip and I definitely had an anger in me because I was seeing the world through the eyes of the monarch, and I saw just so much green grass, and it's like, we have to water that oh. and fertilize that and put chemicals so on it. And for what? For yeah, what? We've decided so that's beautiful. No. I we just have to have a paradigm shift. Mm-hmm. Well, we've decided, we we think that's beautiful, and it's, just, it's we're trying to be good neighbors, and we're trying to, like, you know, be yeah, like be a good neighbor. And what I, what I want people to realize, and I hope that my book showcases, is that we have to be good neighbors to the more than human creatures. So we have to be good neighbors to monarchs and to the bees and to the birds. And to do that, you take out the grass and you replace it with natives. And mm-hmm. if you you can do that on the roadside, you can do that in your yard. And, and when you do that, it's win, win, because not only are you going to have an adventure and get all these beautiful creatures visiting you, but you're also going to save a lot of money on watering. You're going to help filter, filter the water. You're going to help carbon sequester. and, and you're going to not have to spend your all your your entire summer mowing. <laughs> so, yeah. start small if it's a little scary. Start small and then I think the best way is just every year add a little bit more. And and in doing so, you'll be an example that your neighbors will see and that that slowly slowly we can make a paradigm shift and see see a little bit wilder yard as as what is actually beautiful.
3: Mm. You they are way that, more beautiful.
2: They really mm-hmm. are. You know, I mean, because
3: you get all these different kind of flowers and different plants and trees. It's far more interesting. You get way more birds that way, too, and butterflies and other insects. It's it's so much more interesting than this flat green grass.
1: And, and you, you get, get color.
3: Yeah, we actually know a person who pulled out her lawn, and then she went and put AstroTurf down oh, yeah. in the backyard. Mm-hmm. And it's like... What is what is with this big flat green look? I I understand mm-hmm. it for um, football or something. A rant coming up, <laughs> you know. But I don't understand really. It isn't. It isn't because of the uh, maintenance. Because it is more maintenance. I don't know what it is that makes us think that that's pretty. Uh oh.
2: Yeah, we were sold <laughs> on that idea, and and people yeah. are changing. There is some incredible movements out there to like you said like the way station programs to to mm. bring and share nature and and like mm. you said you it's not just national parks if we rely on national parks and wildlife refuges to be the last stronghold to save all the creatures yeah. on the planet we will fail yeah, like, yeah that's it's impossible and yeah and it's
1: we impossible. have to learn
2: that we are part of nature yeah i i
1: want hotels and office buildings and places like that and more and more like we started we started only documenting park national park uh, units and then we quickly learned and we changed the name of our tour and everything the love your parks tour that every single park matters every they're saying that even just for quality of quality of life for a family that every family needs to have a park within 10 miles from them so that they can keep up with their health and um, whether it's mindfulness or meditation or just fresh air uh, but it could be exercise or walking. But it, if we could get more parks and public lands, but even the the, the business world adopted this idea of having, um, you know, way stations out in their gardens and planting native plants that will save them money on water. But places that people go to all the time, I think that would be really great because like the highway program, people know about, you know, pollinator gardens just because they're stopping to go to the rest area They see a pollinator garden, they go, oh, look at all the butterflies. Oh, how pretty is this? Oh, we should do that at home. So that's why I want more corporate people to do it. Bed and breakfast, all of that. And a lot of bed and breakfasts are doing that, actually. We've stayed in a lot of bed and breakfasts, and they're starting Mm. to do the native plant thing. And so the more we do, the better. And more people like you. But listen, I know that you slept in wildlife refuges, uh, but you've slept in people's homes. Um, how did that even come around? Did people see you on a bicycle and say,
2: hey, do you need a place to sleep? What, what's going on with that? Yes, all of the above. I I didn't have a really set schedule when I set off, and that was purposeful because the, if I didn't know where I was going to be most most days, most nights, then that gave me the, the time and space to say yes when I received invitation. And one of my rules bike touring is, is as long as I feel safe, Always say, say yes to opportunity. Always say yes to invitation. And so I would mm-hmm. meet people at grocery stores, and they'd say, "Hey, do you want to come to my house?" And I would say yes. And, and the other thing <laughs> is, there is this incredible network of people taking care of the monarch, and they are dedicated and passionate and strong. And I didn't, I didn't, I underestimated how incredible they were when I first started. But what happened is, one would find out, one person would find out, and they would, they would tell their friends and their network. And then all of a sudden I'd get all these other emails and, you know, it came to the point where I'd have to look at a map and be like, I can't add 300 miles to my trip because I'm running out of time and my legs are tired. But <laughs> if we if were even even kind of close, like I would, I wouldn't hesitate to add 50 miles most of the time to 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 visit someone who had energy to help the monarch because and because what happened is i realized that was also bonding me to the monarch right the experience of like the same people helping the monarch were helping me
0: and in mm. that way our
2: trips were really similar I, I i love that because with you going around
1: i mean that's that happens with us too it's like this interesting thing happens you i feel like we're having conversations on a it's It's not like okay, you're on the show, all these people are going to hear you, but there's just something too to just having these personal one on one conversations with people about a cause that you care about. I, mean, I almost feel like we feel our energy to do that and to touch as many more people as we can by being just that one on one
2: yeah mhm, and I have like a total cheesy metaphor that I love and it gets me through the day, and I think about it it's when when I was in Mexico the monarchs cling from the branches and Mm. and they're they're inactive most of the year but then when the sun comes out they'll actually start flying about and if it's just one you can't hear them but when there's thousands it becomes this like beautiful humming song and it's just so spectacular and i spent hours just with my eyes closed listening to the sound of butterfly wings and i think Mm. wow that's such a perfect metaphor for for all of our conservation efforts because my voice alone would just be you know a voice but when you're talking on behalf of nature and and i am and then all the people we reach share their the short their stories and their passion and their voice well all of a sudden a lot of people are talking and that's that's a voice that's loud and and can't and can't be ignored
1: Mm. everyone's out yeah exactly exactly Mm -hmm. and we've got to You know, stand up for issues of, you know, stand up and sign those petitions and call people, make those calls, make those conversations happen, even on a local level. Right. When if you want something to happen, you walk into to your city council and and say something, you know, call your mayor and say, hey, I want, you know, a monarch way station in the park. You know, the parks and red.
2: Yeah. The
1: more native plants you have, the
2: cheaper it is on
1: water. It really
2: is. Exactly. And there's actually even, there's the monarch's mayor pledge that you can talk to your, to your mayor about, about doing a few, a few things to help put your, put your town on the map and pledge your support to the monarch with action.
1: Ooh, I like that.
3: Mm.
2: Now I want to go
1: travel
3: according to butterflies. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But you know, it is funny when you think about, um, maybe funny, is not the right word. Odd. Um, that we like, we have three states we've been through just very recently: New Mexico, Arizona, and California, who are all suffering from a drought. But they got green lawns, so mm-hmm. you know, so all that extra effort to have a lawn when you find yourself in need of water. Perhaps mm-hmm. if we didn't have so many lawns, we would have more water. You think? Possibly. For
2: sure. I I don't know if this is this. Don't quote me on this. But I saw because I'm in California, I saw a poster and it was like per square foot a lawn uses more water than a swimming pool. Oh,
1: oh wow.
2: And I don't I don't know if that's like site specific to where I was. That was on the east side of the Sierra which is very dry, but mm. the point being is we have to prioritize. We have a limited amount of space and we have a limited amount of, of water and and mm. What? How are we going to use that? And yeah. then quite frankly, it can be put to use. I'd rather drink water than water some, some grass, especially when there's not even kids playing on it or a football game, like you were saying. Like
0: mm-hmm. There is
2: room to have both. But right, right now we're yes. choosing just grass in so many occasions. Yeah. And we have to well, learn to share. Yeah. I think that one thing you can do, it's like if you have kids
1: and a dog and you want to have a play area, just have a play area with that patch of grass. You don't need the whole lawn, you know. Or you have one, you know, like if you have the field and if you have a field, you know, a, a park with a nice grassy area, then that's what everybody uses. You know, that's why I think communities coming together, we can utilize one lawn instead of, you know, each of us having our own lawn is my point. And that way a community is even stronger together. They start playing together and doing things together more. So I think there's a lot of solutions and it's um yeah, we can we can blur the lines of uh, all this, all that, or no, none of this, all of that. You know, I think we can blur the lines and exactly kind of start compromising is the first step. So, are
2: you going to do another journey like this? <laughs> well, I would love to. I've I've um, done done a lot of other trips. I've done canoeing and walking mm-hmm. trips in the United States, and lots and lots of biking. I think I've gone about eighty thousand miles on my bike. And oh, wow, and so I would I would love to keep keep making adventures happen right now. The book is, is the adventure. And I I love the idea that the monarch led me on, on the bike ride. And now the monarch is leading me down this, this book adventure. And we'll, we'll see, we'll see where, where the path goes.
1: Well, I'm wow. going to start
2: reading it too. Nan- well, Nancy mm. pretty much told me every word.
1: <laughs> <laughs> She's all, and this happened, and that happened, you know. So it's 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 it's, it's also a travel story, you know. There's the mm-hmm. monarchs, but it's also an adventure story, you know, as well, which is exciting. Everyone needs that,
2: right? People would see me. People would see me in New York, and they'd say, "You're going to bike to Mexico," and I'd be like, "Yeah." Well, yeah, but look, at there's that little caterpillar right there in your yard. They, that caterpillar might fly to Mexico, or at least it's, it's, its kids might. That's also awesome. And so I hope to add a, a human human element, a human scale to the story to, to just showcase how brilliant these animals are.
1: I love it. I love well, it. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, so, everyone, the book is out now by Sarah Dykman, and it's S-A-R-A. And D-Y-K-M-A-N, Sarah Dykeman, it's called Bicycling with Butterflies, My 10,201-Mile Journey Following the Monarch Migration. You can go to beyondabook.org. So that's a
2: nonprofit that you have, right? It's it's a, more like a website. It's not a technically a yes. nonprofit, but I do not make a profit from it. <laughs> and it's <laughs> and, and just sort of my hub. umbrella. Mm. Yeah, it's a it's a hub for my educational trips and... To kind of just a one-stop shop to, to learn about adventure and all the, the great the great things in the world that are worth stopping to, to look at. Thank you for listening
0: to Big Blend Radio. Keep up with our shows at bigblendradio.com.